Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology is Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Better, thanks Ed. I speak from a purely physical, neurological, personal point of view when I say that uh, I had a migraine, migraine, one of them. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to pronounce it, I just get them. Uh, this week, um, which was pretty rough to yeah. uh, recover from. Huge shout out to anyone who suffers with them regularly. They are so debilitating, and I'm fortunate enough that uh, I don't get them very often, but when they come, they, they make their presence very known, mm. and I am feeling significantly more human now. So, on that front, yeah, I'm alright. How are you? Good, yeah. I mean, I my allergies have been acting up a lot this week, so I've been having lots of like headaches and sense of congestion. Uh, I used to suffer very badly from migraines when I was like 16, 17. I think it may have been just stress over the, you know, kind of like preparing to leave school and go to uni. But I remember there was very keenly a period when I was in sixth form where like every two or three weeks I would have to go home early because I would get like a splitting migraine in the middle of the day and just not be able to do anything. So you have my sympathies. I, I don't have them very often like you, um, but when they hit, oh, it's the worst. <laughs> it's such, a, it's such a, an awful, awful feeling of, of helplessness as you just kind of have to lock yourself away in a dark room until your head stops hating you. Mm. How's your week been in terms of uh, popular culture? Well, my recovery was the kind of one that allowed me to watch stuff because I didn't have too much light and screen sensitivity as I often mm. do so I ended up watching quite a bit Ed and I mixed up in my sort of digital culture diet this week a fair bit of recorded theatre shows again mm-hmm. again Soho On Demand also Show and Tell in terms of uh, platforms, um, I rewatched Legally Blonde, Babe, and The House Bunny, mm-hmm. um, but also watched Dave Chappelle's 846 and started mm. When They See Us, and also High Privilege, It's Me, Chelsea, which mm. kind of all fall under Netflix's BLM banner and effort to provide a kind of I always find it quite awkward when Netflix decides to curate Mm -hmm. and in a way it's good that all of that content is together and given Mm. a a better push by by landing on the homepage like that is at least what I am seeing I don't know if anyone else's algorithms are doing the same but that is what is presented to me um, over the past week as I've been logging on to Netflix but I think it's also a bit in in terms of like the search terms and I need to come up with a better phrase for this, but it's a bit I don't see how different it is from Pornhub. Right. It, it, in in regards to kind of what it decides to try and and say is I don't know, critically acclaimed and mm. that, you know, 
it says Black Lives Matter again in terms of like the pride content there's not that like these are intersectional <laughs> mm-hmm. fights we can sort of celebrate pride and understand that black trans people are you know the, the people who are most likely to be murdered um, mm-hmm. I think that's important too like are you in or out Netflix it's a move towards the right direction I know but also like how are you supporting your creators when the majority of stuff that's been cancelled over the past couple of years is is the work of people of colour and of LGBTQ people mm. although I did like inhale the most recent season of Queer Eye in about a day and a half <laughs> Um, with a cold, with a cold compress on my forehead, feeling very extra, as the kids on the internet there uh, say, they're red. But, and I don't say this to sort of undermine the quality of the actual programming. Like I think High Privilege, it's me, Chelsea, is particularly good and a very good watch right now. If you're like me, very white, like I'm not even just white. I'm very white. I'm a particular kind of middle class white. It is, it is well known in our family that. No, four generations back. My, my family were colonialists. I am wow. the descendants of the bad guys. Oh yeah, have I not ever told you? Gather round yeah. in, children, for a tale. My great-grandfather on my mum's side had a copper and garnet mine in South Africa. Wow. And, uh, sure. And he died in an accident in the mine, Ed. And I think good. <laughs> <laughs> good that he did that is nature healing (laughs) uh, yeah it turns out you don't have to you don't have to love everyone in your family it's better to accept the the goddamn truth of who they were and who you are and how you benefit from it right Mm -hmm. and high privilege it's me chelsea is very interesting in terms of kind of particularly from a sort of comedic standpoint but it did bring home like a lot of stuff in particular sort of being able to have insight into kind of memorials and like the living testimonials of museum guides in America mm-hmm. um, there's this particularly stunning part where Chelsea's talking to an activist who is working at this memorial and museum I want to say her name's Rose Sals. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong and she was working with the sort of southern movement in the mid-60s and mm. was nearly shot by a racist man and a priest who was white stood in her way and was killed. <clears throat> and the kind of... And her discussion of that being like taking that as a gratitude and, and not as a burden and her continuing that anti-racist work is phenomenal and just to think like this is it's it's not over it's not done we can't just forget about it forgetting about it is the worst possible thing we could do we need to listen to these stories and hold on to them and push back at everything that is happening again i mean did it ever really leave um this sort of liberal bubble and i'm rambling ed but it's not really necessarily my place to speak, but I will just finish with, I'm glad my great-grandfather died in, in that mine. <laughs> he shouldn't have been there. <laughs> and he was stealing from the land. And he, well, probably, like, even though I can't say this for certain, there's a 99% likelihood he had slaves. So 
fuck my great grandfather. <laughs> uh, how's your week been culturally, Ed? Uh, good. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of it was geared towards the main topic, so I'll get into it uh, in a moment. But I have been. I had a big kind of like sort out of my books last week. I bought a new bookcase and then just decided I was going to, you know, go through and say, okay, I've read this book. I'm probably not going to read this again. I should get rid of it. You know, I should give it to a charity shop, you know, like, and and kind of like going through. And then I came to the uh, J.G. Ballard section of my books and I've read a few J.G. Ballard books. I've read like Crash and High Rise years and years ago and then really liked them. And then like, as is my want, just kind of like hopped on the internet or hopped down to the now uh, much missed Rowan Racy in Sheffield and you know just kind of like bought a bunch of his books thinking I'll get around to these and just never getting around to them so I've been reading uh, Super Can which is one of his books from the 90s when he kind of moved a little bit away from sci-fi and became kind of more interested in writing kind of crime fiction with kind of a dystopian tinge to it and that's been really fascinating, especially because I think the book was written in the mid to late 90s. And it's all about this kind of enclave in near Cannes in France of where these kind of like big tech companies have kind of built their own little bubble for people to live and work. And there's kind of a little bit of a, uh, what's it called, a Galt's Gulch kind of feel to it. All these people who have kind of like put themselves away and the main character and his wife move there because she's been hired to replace a former um, paediatrician who had worked at this place who months earlier had gone on a shooting rampage and her husband, who's the kind of main character of the book, is kind of trying to figure out what happened with that. Why did this guy suddenly kill 10 people? Did he kill 10 people? Is there a big cover-up? And it's been really fascinating both because it's just a really compelling mystery and like the the way Ballard writes about this guy's search is both you know really good mystery writing but also slightly funny and awry and there's this kind of sense all along of like is this guy just kind of bored and deciding he's going to try and investigate something that doesn't need investigating so there's kind of like a, a humor to it but mainly there's just something that feels very 2020 about his writing about this super can place where all these people are living these kind of like really segmented isolated lives in their own houses where there's no sense of like people going out and talking to their neighbors which does really kind of chime with just like the experience of the last couple of months of being in lockdown and quarantine <laughs> so like i feel like that was the right one to pick because like of i'm sure if I could have picked up that book at any time, I would have found some resonance with it because of all the tech company stuff in it. And, you know, this kind of like image of capitalism that's so rampant that it's just cut itself off from all normal human existence. I'm sure that would have chimed at any point since it was written. But yeah, it's it's been a surprisingly uh, apt choice of reading material for me for, for this week. Mm. So we'll go on to the news for this week and we regret to inform you that the celebs are at it again. <laughs> Following on from Gal Gadot's uh, Imagine video, which, you know, everyone got a good laugh at uh, back at the start of lockdown when people started, you know, just kind of like singing and talking and making jokes into their phone as their only mean of expression. And a bunch of rich people decided, hey, let's, let's do it to Imagine and not really for any purpose. We got a lot of celebrities doing, again, front-facing camera 
things where they were talking about their own sense of complicity in, you know, allowing racism to exist around them in their lives. And I think you and I were both kind of like talking about this in, you know, in our DMs. And I think we both kind of agreed that it was better than the Imagine video in that it was actually more pointed. But it also... I don't know. Like, I don't like the way in which cringe has kind of become just so used all the time to describe things. But I kind of feel like that was the 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 feeling I got from watching it was I just kind of felt very very embarrassed for everyone involved. Yeah, and what even is the organization about? Mm -hmm. Again, it was one of those horrible things where each person you saw you were just waiting for the next one because you knew another one was coming and you were like, oh, no, not you. Oh, why are you... <laughs> like, just this parade of disappointment. And yeah. I just think it's interesting that we're at this point of hopefully we'll see the end of kind of the empty celebrity... Because this is endorsement, isn't it? It's not activism. Mm. And yeah. I think this kind of self-flagellating parade isn't gonna cut the mustard anymore um mm. that's a very archaic phrase i don't even have any mustard in my fridge anyway it's <laughs> not anything that of substance still and it, like great i'm really glad you're taking responsibility cross-reference my racist dead great-grandfather have i mentioned how glad i am in not only <laughs> that he's dead but the manner in which he died um the poetry of it oh mm, god it's like something from a novel that i should write Ed. <laughs> um <laughs> but what is it what is it doing what is it doing it's like there's been really amazing resources going around on social media just now and there is one about optical allyship mm. and I was like oh god that's it like and I think the key thing is that I'm, who wants to uh, and 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 someone else on Twitter pointed out you know this is really terrible acting like I think mm. that they're trying so hard to be earnest like it's particularly the Aaron Paul one where it's like <laughs> It feels like someone's just asked him a question and then he says that and you can almost hear like the cut and everyone clapping in the mm. fucking coat, like the mall, the Kodak theater where they have the Oscars and him just being like very humble and like, Ugh. and I'm like, oh my God, Jesse, no, like you were more convincing. <laughs> Be more convincing if he just went, yo, Mr. White, that's me. Sorry. Um, <laughs> like, oh, why do they continue? I, I, I feel like it's almost an endurance test. It's like, how far can you get through? I drop off at Kesha every time. <laughs> I don't know anyone else who's in the rest of that video because that's the, that's that's how much I can I can stomach of it. And I just think, who who is going to find this helpful? Mm. I, I and I think, like I I think when it first appeared, I was like, oh, what's Sarah Paulson up to? She's wearing the serious black jumper. Nod to mm -hmm. Jade Adams. Everyone should see serious black jumper. Although it is on Amazon, and I might come to a point on that uh, later on. But still, she's amazing. That whole show is amazing. You should definitely see it. I'm like, oh, what are you up to? What are you up to, Sarah? What are you on about? And and the big glasses as well. And it's all just oh, and it's in black and white, Ed. It's in black and white. <laughs> oh. <laughs> It does. It does make for an interesting contrast with 
the Imagine video in that regard because like the Imagine, the Imagine thing was so earnest and so lo-fi and them just kind of like filming themselves on their cameras awkwardly singing that that was kind of where your sense of kind of like sympathetic embarrassment kind of came from of just seeing these people these people you usually see in such produced situations trying to be kind of like doing this incredibly corny thing and this it's kind of like like you say like it just feels very acted um yeah i watched all the way to the end and like aaron paul comes back towards the end as everyone pointed out like his like delivery towards the end is very much jesse pinkman being like he can't keep getting away with this you know it's like it's really doesn't it really does feel like a performance it's literally performative ed (laughs) yeah they've kind of gone for the two extremes of one of these videos like the next one maybe they'll triangulate and they'll kind of figure out what the right balance between earnestness and performance uh, performativeness is but yeah it, it it's it is just so strange and so it's so stilted as well like it does feel so overly written as opposed to i don't know just like filming them talking to a camera talking about specific instances in their life where they just rather than have it be this kind of like them you know the repetition the kind of real kind of like first day of drama writing class kind of approach to the way in which they try and get across the point they're trying to make which is that you know as white people in a position of privilege they have you know helped engender a system of white supremacy even if it's just by not speaking up and like that's it's a good thing to acknowledge but like doing it in this way does just kind of feel very like like Team America with, you know, the actors kind of like showing up and talking about their causes. Like it does kind of veer into that degree of, you know, even if it's well-meaning, that sense of it being kind of faintly smug. Faintly is charitable, Ed. The only <laughs> the only charity that's actually going on here is you calling it faintly smug. Oh, <laughs> please, celebrities, just stop. Just stop. Just fucking... Give them your money. Fuck off. Yeah, just do the just do the Brooklyn Nine Nine cast thing of donating a hundred thousand dollars. Like that's a nice that's a step in the right direction. That's a start, yeah. So we'll go on to our next topic, uh, our next uh, news story this week, which is kind of a bunch of news stories that have all kind of like rolled into one at the same time. But I feel like the focal point, as far as we're concerned is the news that Gone with the Wind will be temporarily taken off of HBO Max, which happened this week. I think it went down on the 9th of June was when it was taken off of their service because obviously it's a Warner Brothers film and Warner Brothers own HBO Max and, you know, like a lot of their content is on there. And and they took it down for the, I would say, fairly uh, correct reason that it's a film that for nearly over 80 years at this point has you know at at the very least been tacitly pro-slavery and is definitely romanticizing of the confederacy and the lost cause and it's a movie that for all of its kind of value as an example of like grand epic hollywood filmmaking at the time and the performances and all this sort of stuff it is something that kind of has a fairly toxic legacy associated with it which has kind of become more pronounced over the years 
and I think HBO saw that and said, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't have this on our platform at this time. Mm. This does not seem like the time for this movie to be uh, up there, you know, at the same time that the statue of Jefferson Davis is being taken down from the Kentucky State House, uh, which is not something I ever thought would happen, um, you know, or that, you know, the Confederate flag is being banned at NASCAR rallies and things like that. You know, like having a movie that can be fairly convincingly argued as being pro-Confederacy uh, is probably not the right call. So they took it down. They This sparked a load of people talking about censorship, which yeah. it isn't because it's the, the, the movie's still available pretty much everywhere you would want to find it. You can still buy it on physical media. You know, there's plenty of Blu-rays of it kicking around. You could rent it. Uh, lots, lots of people did. Lots of people rented it from, like, Amazon after it got taken down off HBO Max. Uh, it's just not available on this one platform briefly and i it's important to say briefly as well because uh it was announced a few days later that the movie will be coming back with a new introduction recorded by uh jacqueline stewart who is the host of silent sunday nights on tcm and also a professor uh, in the department of cinema and media studies at the university of chicago who will be doing like an uh, an introduction kind of putting it in a new context similar to what you see with you know, those collections of old Looney Tunes shorts where they start off with a little plaque card saying, you're like, you know, these these are from a different time. They don't necessarily represent, you know, the, the, the views of today and all this sort of stuff. But basically saying we want, we're not getting rid of this, you know, kind of work of art that is, you know, kind of a very central part of American Hollywood history or whatever. We're just thinking now's not the right time. When we put it back up, we're going to have some context for it. But obviously by this point that they had announced that half of it or that half had become publicized um the conversation had moved far beyond that to just kind of about how they're kind of like rewriting history and how it's censorship which are all i i think fairly fallacious claims totally it's it's false equivalence it's not censorship like you say and, and with confederate flags and things like oh i mean if you really love it, then there's nothing actually stopping you from buying a Confederate flag and Gone with the Wind and wrapping yourself up in that flag, buying another one so that your whole home is draped in these awful, awful symbols and you can watch Gone with the Wind on repeat as much as you like in your own home, as far as I'm aware. HBO Max actually have every right to do that. And also, like, I think I'm not going to go into the full whack of free speech and, and censorship because I, I did I did that as part of my degree <laughs> and it's a it's a fun journey to go on but it's it's to shorten but oh god I'm just stumbling but look <laughs> just read some Karl Popper lads um, and many many other people and just because you don't get to see what you like it doesn't mean it's it's censorship particularly when it is the like you say pretty pretty pro (laughs) confederacy and i think having that context is really great and really important and is just an added bit of film criticism that is really i mean i don't think anyone would be able to put up birth of a nation Mm -hmm. without some kind of context and again i'm not someone who's saying like we should never watch these films but talking about this a lot Ed in terms of the statue discourse Mm -hmm. and I think what isn't sort of 
put forward enough as a reason is that it's incredibly funny. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. How how is yes, there is there is justice being served. It's symbols on symbols on symbols, right? You can't say, oh, it's a symbol of this, but it can't simultaneously also be a symbol and reiteration of the oppression that the majority of people in Bristol, for example, experienced and and you know we've learnt more about history because a statue is not up anymore than in, yeah. the t- than in the entire time that it was up there and the number of times that the people of Bristol went about the you know good proper democratic way of uh, trying to get it removed didn't fucking work did it and I think it's hilarious to watch a statue go bloop 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 <laughs> um, I also really appreciate the number of different people uh, online trying to put into words the sound of a racist statue going under the water i think <laughs> there's yeah oh it's great and it's 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 really funny as well as being correct and morally right um so i think that's something that's really important to hold and it does just bring everyone out quite clearly doesn't it it's mm. like oh this is but this is the film you're going wild for in terms of free speech is it where where were you kind of fighting for women in Iran um, I don't think I remember hearing you at that point or you know like of all the <laughs> oh, of all the films to get behind but hey you know what Gone with the Wind fans, Confederacy fans tomorrow is another day but today <laughs> it's not on HBO Max, go and watch something else, go and watch the imperfect but still fucking some kind of effort of the BLM compilation on Netflix just now I am, as ever, read, of course, incredibly coherent and fair <laughs> in my line of argument. And this is what a, a 2-1 in philosophy does for you. It makes you really appreciate how fucking hilarious it is when when things get toppled. That's, that's my view. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Also, it's been very funny seeing people just kind of take apart the argument that you know like oh the 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 statue itself is you know teaching people history the the counterpoint being like well if it was teaching history i'm sure a lot more people would have known that this person was like a slave trader or terribly racist like that seems to have been lost somewhere in the history lesson that the statue was obviously teaching so very well uh yeah as a historian uh, statues aren't history (laughs) 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 books books are history uh statues can be a symbol of something it cannot impart its lesson in and of itself because just as a culture we're used to putting statues up for people who did a good thing and if you see a statue and you don't know who it is of you're probably likely just to assume oh that person yeah they probably did a great and good thing and that's why there's a statue for them yeah so they they valorize rather than contextualize exactly which is why i'm so pleased about the steel the women of steel in in sheffield our our most beloved city Mm. that the reason that there was a celebration where that came in wasn't oh finally we'll get to know a little bit more about the history no it was like these women were amazing and Mm. this city is choosing to as you say valorize excellent word them so we'll go on to our main topic for this week and like i said this and this kind of touches upon the the last uh news story in the you know the, the gone with the wind is a it's cut something of a canonically kind of great film not not necessarily in terms of quality i think it's terrible but um in terms of 
stature in terms of terms of prestige in terms of certainly in terms of box office receipts you know it's still i think the highest grossing movie ever made in terms of when you adjust for inflation certainly the one that sold the most tickets in the u.s um it's a movie of great import and as such it is often included in kind of like the canon of great films uh, particularly great american films and what i wanted to talk about this week was about the notion of the canon you know of this idea of these are the great movies, these are the movies that you should see if you care about film, and the limitations of that, and also uh, how, in some ways, uh, even their limitations can be advantageous. And this is also, this was largely spurred on from the fact that this week I've mostly been watching Women Make Film, the documentary essay film by Mark Cousins, which uh, is available on Blu-ray here in the US now and I think is coming to Criterion Channel at some point so uh, people will get to see it uh, soon hopefully or more people will but you know if you want to rush out and get the Blu-ray I would highly advise it because it's a very good series in which uh, in the introduction he basically says well I say he Tilda Swinton because Tilda Swinton uh, is the narrator for pretty much all of the all of the series says you know that the all of the great films in history, or most of the great the recognised masterpieces, were directed by men. What if we ignore them and look at the great movies made by women? What if, you know, you look past all of the movies that everyone always talks about? What if you ignore The Godfather, if you ignore Jaws, if you ignore Citizen Kane, and instead look at the movies that women made over the course of the last hundred-something years of cinema? What can you learn from watching those movies? What does it teach you about the way in which women make films differently, although that is not the primary focus of it? Um, What can it just teach you about the basics of cinematic technique, and what can you learn from just studying the films films made by women? And I think it's, it's a wonderful piece of of filmmaking is very much in keeping with Cousins's previous kind of opus uh, the story of film which kind of takes the same premise but instead of focusing on women filmmakers basically says what if we kind of look out or look away from Hollywood and instead look at these movies made from different parts of the world and I feel like they are really great as correctives for the canon as it currently exists and really fascinating weirdly act as a justification for the the existence of the canon because it kind of gives them something gives cousins and and you know many other people something to to rail against so let's kind of start off emily what's your kind of experience with kind of like the film canon like like me for example did you spend a lot of time in your youth kind of trying to watch everything on the imdb 250 <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> something that i did a lot of I think my first entry point into the canon, which, like the Constitution of the UK, is not written. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that does kind of shift a bit, but maybe Mm -hmm. more in terms of populism. But we're, as, as we're all aware, we're at a very interesting point in culture right now. And I hope that it will change. That's the quick answer um but my Mm. first entry point to this unwritten canon was my subscription to empire magazine which began when i was i was 11 Mm -hmm. and i used to love reading it and i got it as for my christmas my subscription and i read empire for 
must have been six or seven years then. Um, <clears throat> and so that was between 2001 and 2008. And uh, I remember it being one of the things my mum was like, you either take these with you to university or you <laughs> get rid of them because of all the things <laughs> I'm storing for you, it's not these. And I was like, oh, well, there we go. And I you know, went to this sort of sad trip down memory lane. But I found my first issue. And you know what's so funny? that I remember so clearly on the front cover of that issue, it's just one bit from Charlize Theron where the, the pull quote from her interview is, Splash made me feel lust. <laughs> two two points there, Ed. Two points. Number one, why did it take me so long to figure out that I was bisexual? Number two, because that didn't actually put me off. It didn't it didn't make me think like, oh, this is a magazine for lads, because only boys can be interested in in cinema. Um, but that was very much the editorial steer of Empire at that point. And two, that was not the point of that bloody interview. <laughs> it was one throwaway, throwaway mention. It might have even been around the time Monster was out. Anyway, I digress. Empire. So I read Empire. And again, I think it was only as I got into my mid-teens that I really realised quite how the writing was not aimed at me. Mm. And I don't think it ever was, but I think it went over my head more because... As I've mentioned before on this podcast, I had as my kind of cultural role models, the people that I looked up to, the people that I copied, people that I tr- whose, whose opinions I, I trusted first and foremost, were my older cousins, Fred and Phil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they sort of empire was floating around the house. And I think that's where I first started to read it. And I think I was just used to this idea of like, I just liked what I liked. And I knew it was kind of for boys, but it, there wasn't as swift a kind of distinction and I was very much a Barbie girl in a Barbie world and I just liked what I liked but it was around the middle as I got into my mid-teens I was like oh hang on and I remember very clearly Empire giving Attack of the Clones a five-star review and then retract infamous, infamous, <laughs> and then retracting it. A co- I mean, who doesn't remember that? Retracting <laughs> it a couple of months later, or maybe even a fair bit later, when the DVD came out with like three stars, being like, "Yeah, I think we were a bit overexcited," and it was very much that kind of like fanboys ruling the roost. Yeah, and then as I, but it was reading Empire, and then having a wider interest in films, and just reading more film books, and the early days of the internet, and just being able to kind of create my own, as I think we all do, like these kind of mental webs of like, mm. oh well, I loved this film, and then you're like, who's who's in it? Who directed it? Who wrote it? I think those are the three entry points for any young fan of cinema and I think we still all carry that today like things like production or country or things like that as a much harder to kind of I feel like personally I have to make a conscious effort to explore those kind of networks and how those things are joined Hmm. but I would build I built this web and then it was like oh foreign film is a thing because Empire did did cover that like it wasn't necessarily front and center but the general and again, it's not... I come back to this point that the can isn't written, but it's something that, from that fanboy perspective of writing, is still that... And I think it, there is still, even in kind of more professional realms of, of criticism, it's this idea of, like, 
oh my god you have to see that but not in a mm. not in a co- not in a conveyance of like enthusiasm not in a not in a sense of like oh you'll love this this is such a treat i can't wait for you to see it it's like how have you not seen that already so i think mm. that the canon can't help but be sort of undercut with a sense of snobbery and definitely like i think well you and i've discussed this on other episodes you, you kind of go on like hopefully like an evolution in terms of as we have done over several several decades in in cinephilia and I was just thinking recently kind of thinking of the idea of what to talk about for this topic this week is you know Scorsese is up there pretty much in whatever canon you look at we if we want to sort of think of the canon as this kind of you know IMDB top 250 or just any kind of opening opening paragraph on anything to do with like gangsters or you know Scorsese's up there right and the thing that I found a new sort of fondness for because someone I haven't really watched much of at all is Josephine Decker um and I'd really love to watch her films but knowing that he he sort of has watched her films and has you know been a big instrument in sort of getting her on board in, in terms of Shirley or just kind of like that boost in her career and I think, well, mm. that's that's all right of you, Marty. That's good. Because I think that's from someone who comes from a place who really loves cinema, um, mm. is the hope anyway. And even though I can kind of quibble about what I think he's doing with his own work in terms of his wider work as a producer, as someone who loves film and cinema and his work in preserving archives and his energy that he's putting into helping other artists in cinema, like, great top-notch Marty bellissimo well done but I think I think the canon is something that you learn by inference and it's Mm. something and it's something from my own experience back in the day when I used to work in like film production no one teaches you clearly outright what is expected it is this very frustrating it, it, it's it's inference and it's like you kind of have to put it together yourself and mm. I don't think that's always fair Yeah, because that is a system that will benefit a certain strata of society when film really is such a great medium to be accessible to people in various different in various different ways and I'm now, I'm wondering how useful the canon is as someone who has studied film, worked in film, and still bloody loves rambling on about film every week with you, Ed. I guess I'm trying, what I'm sort of thinking about now is even as we're sort of thinking about like the transformation, which is well overdue of representation in culture and various different people having not only being able to make their work, but get it seen widely and distributed. What, what what's the value of a canon in the first place eh how does it serve us what 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 do what canon do ed <laughs> i think in terms of it's it's kind of like value in like if we, if we take it in like a value neutral sense if we kind of like set aside for the moment that the canon that it as it currently exists and, and as you say it's kind of like a nebulous unwritten thing but if you look at say the list the weighty lists that people kind of like look at and judge like okay these are the movies that everyone says are great and that you should see like imdb 250 is kind of the 
the populist end of this, which is like a lot of people watch these movies and vote on them and say that, okay, you should see Shawshank Redemption or whatever. Or if you look at, say, the BFI do their top 50 every 10 years, which is a little better in terms of like, you know, it has a bunch of movies from silent era. It has movies from all different countries. Only has one film directed by a woman in there, the uh, Jean Dielman, directed by uh, Chantal Ackerman. Mm -hmm. And only has two movies directed by women in the top 93, with the other one being Bouge Travail by Claire Denis. There's biases in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if if we set aside, you know, just like the canons that exist and say, what is the value of a canon in the abstract? I think it's useful as a common commonality between people as a point that everyone can kind of agree on and say this is a good starting point yeah like if you want to take cinema seriously if you want to understand the history of cinema if you want to understand what people talk about when they talk about you know what cinematography is what editing is then you have to see Citizen Kane, you have to see Battleship Potemkin, you have to see Psycho, or, you know, like, all this sort of stuff. Like, these are movies that, like, really defined what people think of as the medium over time as well. And, like, these are all kind of very good. In the same way that, you know, to go back to Scorsese when he talks about why people should watch older movies, he says, you know, like, all the great painters should study the masters, you know, you should understand what people think great painting is before you can really and and you kind of imitate it and you know kind of find out what style works for you before you do your own work and I feel like that's the value because at least initially if you're talking about someone's first venture into becoming uh, you know kind of like a film lover or into actually wanting to write and direct movies yourself it's so vast cinema there's so much of it mm-hmm. that to kind of just be thrown into it unguided, I think on one level would be quite thrilling. I think it'd be very interesting to see what movies someone would make if they were not told what the good ones were and were just kind of unleashed into, you know, a video store, you know, uh, and just said, OK, pick anything that looks good to you, watch it and then start trying to uh, start trying to make movies based on this. I think it'd be very interesting to see the results of it. But you know, it also is overwhelming. I think a lot of people would kind of like just not know where to begin. So I think a canon is like a really good place just for people to get started from. That's certainly what the IMDb 250 was for me, you know, as a, as a teen who was first becoming really interested in movies, like seeing a movie was listed on there, particularly if it was a movie I hadn't heard of before and that was like an older movie that had a sense of legitimacy to it even though it shouldn't because it's just randos on the internet voting on things but seeing like that double indemnity was in the top 100 and that was not a movie i'd ever heard of i was thinking okay well people seem to think that's good let's let's you know record it off of one of the sky movie classics or whatever and watch it and then just being blown away and then like you say from there seeing the connections what else did this billy wilder guy do and then kind of discovering some of my favorite movies ever so i i feel like on a just kind of like an abstract level and you're kind of like setting aside the fact that the canon as it exists is is obviously you know has a bias towards american movies towards movies about white people made by white people particularly white men that is kind of like in the abstract what the value of a canon is and even the flawed one 
ones that we have I think do have kind of that value as just being like something that you can point to for like budding film lovers to say hey if you're interested in movies like this is a list of ones that you should probably check out that is a beautiful way of putting it Ed and I agree with you because I don't think that's actually like a um, taking away the value from the canon that's actually putting the value back into the canon that's taking <clears throat> that's removing the bias because yeah. the idea of a canon is powerful in the same way that we're kind of chatting about the statue discourse. <laughs> so funny. Remember when that statue <laughs> of the slaver went into the sea and then little gay SpongeBob went, huh? <laughs> yeah, in terms of other ridiculous things people are spinning out about on the internet. I mean, everyone knew SpongeBob. Sorry, I'm, di- I'm digressing. <laughs> but it, but it is, it's, it is valorizing. Mm. And there is something beautiful in terms of how these films are in some way important to the art form because cinema is still a baby Mm -hmm. compared to other art forms it is so little and not and i don't think it's a coincidence that america and cinema are really tight (laughs) right (laughs) yeah there is much room for improvement there's a lot that's been covered over what a century and, and, a, and a slice mm-hmm. and I think if we understand the value of these things and remove the bias and then we can see exactly what it it could be in a utopian sense right and I completely agree with you I think if, if the canon is a shifting collection of films that are significant to the art form and can kind of encapsulate what they were about at the time and continue to have some sort of relevance mm-hmm. going forward and not just in a kind of oh the universal human themes of love life death i nearly said live love laugh then whoops <laughs> um <laughs> that's that's the karen not the canon sorry i was getting those two confused <laughs> i'm speaking more in terms of that we can still find something that is worthwhile and by that I don't I do not mean good mm-hmm. in these things cross-referencing our chat about Gone with the Wind there yeah because like Gone with the Wind is like like I said I don't I don't particularly enjoy it I've I like watched it years ago because like it, it was like like you know the the whole basic idea of a canon it was a movie that you should see in terms of like people talk about film history in terms of epic filmmaking or whatever and I, yeah, I definitely kind of came away thinking it, thinking that was a long, boring movie. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't care a huge amount about. But at the same time, it's hard to watch it and not be impressed by the scale of it, particularly when you consider, uh, you know, in a time when di- when uh, visual effects were in their nascency, that where there is a obviously there's no digital effects there's no cgi none of the techniques that we're now used to for movies that want to project a scale where you have a battle where there are thousands of combatants like you watching you realize oh wow they've really you know did this you know maybe they use matt's paintings or whatever to make it look a little larger but there's still like hundreds if not thousands of people you know strewn on the ground during that scene you know where they they pan across all of the army the injured and dead and that it's hard not to be impressed by that with the scale of it the craft that's on display there's lots of things i think from a 
craft and aesthetic and from a cultural perspective that is really kind of valuable in Gone with the Wind if you want to understand what Hollywood filmmaking was in 1939 and why this was considered to be a peak even if you know the themes of the movie may be abhorrent to you and just the dramatic elements of it may just be like absolutely tedious you know it can still be considered in a movie that is kind of like canonically important because of of what it represented and the fact that it was just such a huge popular hit as well you know you can't ignore something that that was that popular because its popularity does say something totally it's not just valorizing mm. it can also be a like you say as we keep saying like entry point or pointing to some kind of significance mm-hmm which is not necessarily valorizing. It can be, or not, or not even like threatening mm. <laughs> or, or problematic. It can just be heads up. <laughs> this is mm. when <laughs> this was the biggest thing at the time. And that doesn't mean that you then have to like it or agree with it, mm. but okay, I'm about to say it, it is embiggened. <laughs> <laughs> what a gromulent word. See, I was gonna, I was gonna make the other Simpsons reference, which is that it's uh, great meaning larger immense. We mean it in the pejorative sense. <laughs> <laughs> the all-time great chant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, so many good ones. It's a shame they completely went to rot, isn't it? Yeah. Oh well. Both, both of the Simpsons quotes follow here, and I think sometimes it, as we are, kind of weaving our own mental webs and understanding of moving through film as an art form it is really handy to have pointers even Mm. to be able to reject them yes and it's about again there's kind of the fact and the feeling to use the shapiro distinction apologies (laughs) but there is there is the fact of the time that gone with the wind was very popular that that mm. the feelings of the, of people towards that film the majority were very popular i do not have to feel that way about it now but mm. but my understanding would be poorer and incorrect if i didn't know that yeah. so i think the canon the idea of a canon is it's trying to do a lot of different things at once mm. and leaning too hard into one doesn't appreciate what else it's trying to do and our understandings are lesser and we will get into a lot of cross-purpose arguments and arguing past each other, I think, if we don't sort of establish quite early on if we're trying to have a discussion with someone else about film. Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm talking about the canon in, in the kind of the factual sense rather <clears throat> than the, oh my God, you have to see this because it's beautiful sense. Yeah. I think also... I kind of like mentioned this as well in terms uh, earlier when talking about the Mark Cousins things. I do think that even if you don't agree with the composition of a canon, I feel like that almost kind of justifies its existence even more because it's really good to have something like that to rail against. Yeah. In the sense that it can give you a framework like the Mark Cousins films from which to say okay, this is all the stuff that everyone agrees is great, I'm going to ignore that and focus on stuff that people don't talk about and I'm going to try and find the stuff that is just 
that is obscured by the canon, which is, you know, that is the problem with the canon is they can, you know, valorize or, you know, kind of embiggen the these handful of movies at the expense of other stuff that was made at the time that may be equally as great but just didn't catch on for whatever reason. Uh, and I, but I, I do feel like an antipathy towards the canon can be its own powerful motivating force and you kind of you kind of need the canon for that to work so yeah so i mean that, that that's kind of like i guess that's kind of where i i pull down on the, the use of a canon on the one hand it is it can be very good in its own right as just a way to guide people through xenophilia but also it's really useful as a thing to get mad about <laughs> it can be helpful as a framework in that way and it is and it is there as like establishing here are different here's a whole bunch of different opinions and dates and facts and figures that you can pick out of and use. Mm. But I also think there's enough to rail against as well for so many people in terms of, I think I'm mainly thinking about people trying to get stuff made. And it's not, yeah. it, and I guess it's, again, we're talking about the canon and I'm kind of, it's all getting quite semantic and metaphysical, which of course I love, Ed, this is exactly <laughs> my bag. But again, it's a little bit like, any of these kind of terms in that to me the way that the canon has been used and taught and hit back in terms of people trying to suggest stuff and and you know there'll be like a producer or someone being like yeah but it's not dot 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 is it mm. is that the canon in some ways is synonymous to me with patriarchy yeah. and, and and saying and and this lack of awareness of oh, these are the, you know, and trying to say, oh, no, these are just the things that you need to, you know, they're just great films. They're just great films. And it's like, well, why are they all by white men? That's, you know, and that is something to rail against. Yes. <laughs> but yeah. but in the dismantling of things, not in something that should maintain to give us some salt and some spice to our, to our arguments to make them kind of like intellectually rigorous. Mm. And differing in an opinion, I think, because if it is meant to be sort of some kind of like majority agreed opinion, you know, it's, it's the kind of mean average or whatever, then I think it does need a fair bit of dismantling. And I think what's interesting about it as well, like how it has changed with things like the IMDb 250 and with Rotten Tomatoes. And as we go forward and more and more people are able to even letterboxed for goodness <clears throat> sake, like the Canon in some ways is good because there's been a sort of populist shift but with so yeah. many things on the internet in terms of populism it's like oh great so many more people who never were able to speak can speak oh god not you fascism <laughs> <laughs> forgot that that also you somehow got in through that door as well and I don't know what I'm trying to suggest in terms of how to fix it or take the bias out of it or, or have it in that most good faith foundation right where it is helpful it's its function is good part of its function is that it's good to rail against without it being something to hold over people's heads and everyone should read how to suppress women writers by joanna russ mm -hmm. particularly just in terms of kind of helping with and also um the lady vanishes which i think is the very first episode of revisionist history which i listened to again big props to my friend Lindsay for recommending uh it to me and in in those 
two pieces. It just it all brought Fleabag back to me, Ed. Because I think the thing about Fleabag is how it is so interesting as a case study in canon because <clears throat> it was really successful at Edinburgh Fringe as a one-woman show, solo show. And then the BBC sort of batted it down a bit and even the second series they were like oh no we sort of want this we want that and and try to sort of push against and now phoebe waller bridge is one of the hottest cultural properties out there and every single commissioner who was like oh fleabag what's that is now trying to hit hook everything back to fleabag anything made by women which is ridiculous because pulling which i'm a great fan of sharon horgan well before she did catastrophe on bbc3 again showing three women who were all in their own way shades of like proto fleabag, but they shouldn't have to be seen as proto fleabag. It's just these things that that should be kind of seen as like great things in their own right. Yeah. But then everything starts to be related to it, and that's where the canon can constrict. Mm-hmm. And and I think another if we're if we're putting down for like Ed and Emily's like top top sort of uh, pointers for the canon. It should be that it encourages people to watch more and to make more. Mm, yeah. And I fear at this point, the way that it's working, it's not doing that. Yeah, I think the the Fleabag example also, it just reminds me of the blurbs that you would see on every British film for <laughs> 15 years, which would be like the best British film since Trainspotting. Or yes! Like, yeah. Every single time, it just kind of kept putting back to it and there was no sense, you know, it wasn't like they updated it each time to say like the best British film since, I don't know, Snatch or whatever, whatever it got attached to. It was always very much kind of like, okay, there's this one canonically great British film that occurred in the mid-90s and then nothing else of any value. And like yeah, that became the lens for everything that kind of like came out. Every British film had to be this kind of like hyper energetic movie that was you know had a a banging soundtrack and that could be equally loved by the cinephiles and the lads you know yeah like where it kind of like it could be on every the poster could be on everyone's uh, wall at university um yeah like there is something that can be so particularly when something becomes kind of like recognized as so canonically great so soon where, like you say, it can be constricting. It can just be another box for people to put work into. Yeah. So we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? I May Destroy You, which I can't <clears throat> not say other than in, like, it just demands that you say it in this kind of really like um effusive sort of way so i may destroy you um <laughs> michaela cole's series which i am just it, i'm i'm so glad that mondays are coming around ed because they are drip feeding it to us and it is astonishing like two episodes in and already i am so excited to see where it goes it is about a writer, Arabella, who is on a deadline, goes on a night out with friends and realises the next day, gradually, it comes to her that her drink was spiked and she was assaulted. Mm. 
and already it's just handling it in such a unique plausible relatable but still very like authored way like this is Michaela Cole's work and mm. it's based on her own ex- her own real life experience from when she was um, writing Chewing Gum and she actually spoke about it in her um, McTaggart lecture at the Edinburgh TV Festival and she I mean even that speech was so inspiring in and of itself and she said uh, just to quote a little bit of it could my silence have encouraged this producer to push boundaries with women and black people further this thought is uncomfortable but I cannot block it out I have to face it instead of standing here wishing for the good old glory days about the way life used to be before Mark Zuckerberg graduated I'm going to try to be my best to be transparent and to play whatever part I can to help fix this house what part will you play which is just, oh, as a speech, incredible. And again, the other thing that I, uh, someone pointed out on Twitter, give I may destroy you the same energy that you gave normal people, which is such an excellent, potent point because it's actually pretty similar. It's a 12 episode of, of 30 minutes. And even though it is, you know, it's a different story, it's not based on a book. And it is a co-production between BBC and HBO, whereas I believe Normal People was BBC and Hulu. Yeah. And I think there's something slightly different there. Is 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 who? You have to correct me here, Ed. Is Hulu subscription? Hulu is, is subscription. Yeah. Right. Okay. And I and I wonder if there's a sort of difference there, but I I'm certainly not getting the same kind of well promotion. If I may destroy you, that I did with Normal People on the iPlayer and across different things so you know there's something there but it is absolutely incredible I I can't rave about it enough I can't wait for the next 10 episodes it is important it is entertaining it is an event in the biggest sense of the word Ed so um, yeah on your lot on your side of the pond HBO my lot iPlayer let's get it done Cool. I am going to recommend the new Spike Lee film, uh, The Five Bloods, which just debuted on Netflix on Friday and is really terrific. Uh, It's about four black Vietnam vets who go back to Vietnam, you know, many years after the conflict in order to search for uh, a trove of gold that they found whilst they were on a mission, as well as the remains of their commanding officer who died on the mission where they found the gold it's a really particularly the first 90 minutes i think a really great movie about uh masculinity about camaraderie and brotherhood about the specifically in terms of vietnam and the fact that you know as as um is said in a clip by muhammad ali at the start of the movie when there are this there's this wonderful montage of all of these kind of relevant moments from around the period of the Vietnam War where you had uh, black people volunteering to go and fight in the war, often in higher percentages than their actual percentage of the US population, in order to fight for uh, the propagation of a system that did not respect them at home. And, you know, the, the question of what that, you know, does to, to someone's psyche, it's got great performances by uh, like Isaiah Wicklock Jr who's kind of a Spike Lee regular who's just always always wonderful Clark Peters and most 
probably most notably in that everyone's talking about it and uh, there's a lot of even now early Oscar buzz for his performance but Delroy Lindo as one of the one of the bloods who has kind of been so disillusioned and angry over the course of his life that you know at the start of the movie is they talk about how he voted for Trump and it's just a really fun you know energetic bravura bit of work from Spike Lee as, as you would expect from someone who's always been such a kind of energetic filmmaker you know it's it's a really entertaining watch I think it delves into some really interesting themes and personally I think the last hour is kind of a little stodgy compared to the first hour and a half but even when the movie is kind of languishing it's still so well made the acting is so good and I think it's it's such a fantastic and interesting story that it kind of carries along so definitely worth worth the time uh, that's to five bloods which is on Netflix everywhere if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me and my dead racist great-grandfather. <laughs> Fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>